3: Welcome back to The Truthiest Life. It's your host, Lisa Haim. The Truthiest Life
4: is technically on a season break while I'm sitting back, relaxing, recharging so I can come back with fresh new content mid-September. But while we're on this break, we're not done serving you up some good, juicy content. I went back and selected some of my favorite episodes from the past year that I think we could all really use a second listen to. Maybe it's our first time listening to it. These episodes remind us that we're never alone, that we can get through life's hardest moments, and that all we need to do to be our truthiest selves is feel all those deep, juicy emotions that we're too afraid to feel. I'll see you back here in mid-September with fresh new content. Sit back and enjoy today's episode.
5: I know you'll be alright even when times get hard. And you feel like you're in the dark You will see just how beautiful life can be When you soften your heart You can finally start To live your truthiest life
4: Welcome back to The Truthiest Life. If you're new here, welcome. I'm Lisa Haim, your host. If you're a loyal listener, welcome back. I appreciate you so much. I'm so excited to bring you this next episode with my friend Serena Dyer, who is the daughter of Wayne Dyer, who you may or may not have heard of, pretty famous in the spiritual self-help world. And this may or may not be my favorite episode. I know I feel like I walk away from every episode saying that. And it really is true. I walk away with something to take away, something meaningful from every single episode. But Serena was really interesting to me because even though she's kind of a natural public figure born into some sort of a spotlight, she's A, incredibly humble. And B, she doesn't speak like somebody who... Is a professional public speaker. And she doesn't use her online platforms like that either. She just shows up from a really raw and real, authentic place. And I think it comes through in this episode where Serena shares something she hasn't shared publicly yet. It's something very current going on in her life, a struggle that, you know, can. Really come with a lot of shame, and yet she's breaking her silence to talk about it as she's launching her book. So, you know, this isn't the best time to come out with your darkest secret when your book has nothing to do with that, by the way. But it really does show who she is, which is she's not afraid to show up, she's not going to live in her own shadows, and she is going to continue to trek through the journey of life to return home despite the obstacles that get thrown her way or when she naturally finds herself in the midst of a messier life moment. So I'm so grateful that she shared this with us. I know that it will be well received by this audience who can be sensitive and nurturing. And the book, which I've had the pleasure to read, The Knowing, is incredible. I mean, I I wish that I had these principles instilled with me as a child, but that wasn't the case. But even though it was for Serena, she still had to return to her own knowing, her own deep internal wisdom. So for some of us, we are conditioned to know that we have this deep trust within ourselves. For others, we find our way there later in life. And for other others like Serena, it's instilled with you, but she had to get lost to find it back. And I'm inspired. I'm humbled. I've got chills. And I'm so excited for you to hear this episode. Have a great weekend. Love you all so much. And I'll see you here next week. Welcome back to The Truthiest Life. Today's guest is a really old friend of mine, believe it or not. It's Serena Dyer-Pasoni. Hello, Serena. Hi. Serena is author of two, now three books, right? This is going to be your third book. This is my second book. This is your second book. Yeah.
6: So I have Don't Die With Your Music Still In You and The Knowing. My sister, who I co-authored this one with, she had a children's book. Mm. So maybe you're thinking of that.
4: I actually (laughs) only knew about the I bought Don't Die With Your Music In You years ago when you came out with it. But when I was reading about you, I thought if there was an extra book, but okay. Anyway, you're more than just an author. You're a mom of three and you're an amazing human being on a journey. So I'm so excited to talk to you about your new book and really the very interesting life that you grew up with. So funny little backstory, Serena and I are are very old friends. We connected when I was in college. You were already (laughs) out of college, but living in Miami. So this was 12 years ago. And I remember just being completely enamored by you. You were just the most gorgeous girl in the room. You know, it, it is your outer beauty, but it's your energy as well. That was so noticeable, I think, to me. Well, thank you. Very kind of you. And then funny enough, when Evan and I, my husband got together, he and Serena were actually close friends in college. You guys are either the same age or very close in. Yeah, I think he's two years older than me. Right. I'm 35. So interestingly enough, Evan and you really had a much closer relationship than I had with you when I knew you. And Evan doesn't really have a lot of close friends. Like you're one of the few people that really knows Evan, even though it was a long time ago that you guys, you know, spent a lot of time together. There's only a few people that he has really led into his life and you are one of them. So. Well, I feel privileged. I felt very privileged to watch you guys
6: exchange your vows and talking about energy in a room. I mean, you like rap slash sang part of your vows to Hamilton. It's like, you can't get more confident than that. And I loved every minute of it. I was like truly on the edge of my seat. So whatever confidence you saw in me was just a mirror of yourself because that is what I see in you. And obviously I love Evan his OCD and all. <laughs> I feel like I always felt the need to like wash my hands 17 times when I was around him because he was so afraid of like germs and hands. And I'm, <laughs> I'm glad to hear that he considers me a good friend because I, I think of him the same. And I was trying to set him up with you a while ago.
4: He says that. Yeah, because I was. Yeah. I was vegan when we met and he tells the story that you were like, I met this vegan girl who I think you're going (laughs) to like. So you really are. You planted the seed first. See, It really was all you. I think that the name Serena might be in your future. I'm going to have a baby. Name name your baby Serena if you have a girl. I love the name Serena. So maybe. So it's really cool about my relationship to you is I had heard of you, seen you been encapsulated by your energy before I knew what your last name meant. So, you know, in college, I wasn't very spiritual. I definitely hadn't forayed into the self-help section or spirituality at all. I was definitely Mm -hmm. not spiritual. And so Dyer was pretty meaningless to me at the time. (laughs) And that's not really how probably most of your life has gone. Most of, the, of your life has probably been framed by the fact that your father was Wayne Dyer. Honestly, it's funny that you say that because I don't remember having an awareness that
6: that was like a, I don't know, I want to say like a thing, like a cool thing or a big thing until I was probably around the age when I met you until I was like college age ish. Now I did know that my dad had been on TV and I knew that he was a writer and I knew that there were people that liked his work, but nobody my age did. So it just seemed like like a distant thing to me. I thought it was cool what he did. Like I remember as a kid going to his talks and seeing people pay money to hear him speak basically, but that didn't seem unusual to me. It wasn't until I was honestly like college age where people my age were actually reading his books. Um, and I think that that really started with like people going to yoga or people that were doing yoga. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of brought his message to like a younger audience. I'm guessing, I don't really know if that's, that's how that happened, but it honestly wasn't like a, Cool thing
4: that people recognized the last name Dyer until I was like in college. It explains, I guess, your humility. Although I think <laughs> even if you did understand, you know, the reach of of your father's work, you would have still been so humble. It sounds like the home that you grew up in, which your mom played a really big role in the grounding, it sounds like as well. From what I've mm-hmm. read, you've never talked to me about this, but I, I heard you say at an interview that your mom was actually the real teacher in the house. Like your mom was your dad's teacher. Yeah,
6: she is the one who lives it without needing attention or praise or talking about it. And my dad, my dad was always a really great teacher. And I think that, a really great teacher is somebody that can get you excited to like learn something or take something on or approach something new or something that could be potentially scary and to do it with excitement and enthusiasm. My mom would not have been that. And she's not that. She wouldn't be able to sell you on her way of being, except by the way she like walks her talk, you know? So it's almost Mm -hmm. like she leads by example, whereas my dad is, more like me or I'm more like him. Whereas like, we're all mouth and then we'll like finally get to it at the end kind of thing. So yeah, my mom is the one who really like lives what the message is all about, or she really lives like the peacefulness, the internal peacefulness that that I
4: have to like search for and that my dad had to search for. Are any of your siblings more similar to your mom?
6: Yes. My brother Sands is very, he's very similar to my dad, but he's, he's very calm He does not like to be the center of attention. He's very quiet. He's very peaceful. And I would say he's a lot like my mom and my sister Sage is a lot like my mom. Whereas I am a lot more boisterous, vocal, dramatic, kind of like a performer. And that was more like my dad. And there's a lot of you. (laughs) Yeah, there's eight of us. (laughs) And only one boy, right? two boys. I have an older brother. He's 11 years older than me. So I didn't have him in like elementary school or whatever, like I did Sands, but Sands grew up with five sisters right around him, right around his age.
4: (laughs) Oh my gosh. there's a lot of children happening in one house.
0: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global.
2: the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva, Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store.
1: Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles Ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R I T E R U G.com today to schedule a free in home estimate or to find a location near you. 24 month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.
4: So either way, your childhood is going to be unique, even if you weren't aware that it was special or different. Did everyone around you have the access to spirituality that you did that you never it never struck you as being different? You knew the late the greatest names in spirituality, you know, people that you pay. I, I definitely of. yeah. Okay. So it
6: definitely struck me as an unusual. Like I didn't know anybody else who had an Uncle Deepak who had a Baba Ramdas. I didn't know anybody that had monks as friends. Um, every summer on Maui, we would go to our friend Frederick's house. He's a monk and he would make us like mung beans and this whole vegan meal. And, um, we would chant and it would always just turn into laughter because none of us could keep a straight face, but I didn't know anybody else that had that, that kind of exposure. I mean, I was taught transcendental meditation when I was five and became trained in TM So I knew that it was different. I grew up in Boca Raton and went to a private school where everybody's dad wore a suit to work and my dad wore Birkenstocks and like a free T-shirt that somebody sent him in the mail (laughs) and that would say like, imagine with like the Beatles on it or something. So I knew that they were different in that way, especially since as a kid, whenever there would be a question asked, like, where did you go over the summer? Or how many brothers or sisters do you have? Or what do your parents do? Or have you been to any cool trips? Like, I don't know, things I think that kids' parents will ask to kind of like try to get to know you. I never, ever had a simple answer. answer. And I remember that really standing out to me as a kid, like all the other kids went to like camp three miles down the road. And I went to Hawaii every summer, all of my siblings' names were unusual and they all started with S and I had so many of them. And I remember, you know, everybody else would do their family like picture for like first grade or second grade where you draw your family and you like bring in your board, like all about me kind of thing. I don't know. My kids still do it at their school. They bring in like an all about me and it's like, who's your mom? Who's your dad? Who are your siblings? But. But mine would be like enormous. And so I just always knew that I had I had experiences that other people didn't have. But I, I didn't know that I would get to a point in my life and I would want to do the same for my children. I didn't know how beautiful it was because it was all I knew. Now I know how beautiful it was. Like the coolest thing that happened to me when we were kids was we got invited to Michael Jackson's Neverland Ranch and we spent a week out there and Macaulay Culkin was there like that. I knew it was really cool, but even at the time I was seven, I didn't know it was like really cool. You know, it was like, but now I have such an appreciation and I have so much awe and gratitude because my parents really were like pioneers, I guess, in raising children in a spiritual way that's not imposing spirituality upon them. And I think that is a distinction. That's really huge. And like you said,
4: like your mom was just in a room meditating, not this is how we meditate. Did you grow up meditating your entire life? (laughs) No. So I learned TM when I was five, because
6: they wanted us to have that tool to like quiet our minds. And um, they had a friend who taught TM. So that's why we learned that. But I never practiced it. It wasn't until I was in my 20s that I started actually practicing meditation, but no, I wasn't something that I did. But I will say this, when I would get in my car, for example, when I was a teenager, I would usually have it silent. I would usually turn the music off. It was only if my friends came in that we would like blast the music. I enjoyed the silence. Mm -hmm. And I do think that in some way, it was like a little bit of a meditation for me, like driving, knowing where I'm going, but without obsessing over it or thinking too much about it. Um, and doing so in silence. I do think it was like a form of meditation that I didn't realize when I embraced silence, that was what I was doing.
4: I think you bring up such a good point. Like you said, your parents didn't push this way upon you and instead you were comfortable with stillness now when we talk about meditation and finding stillness it comes with such force and with an app and with a timer yeah. <laughs> it, it because we're so distant from how to do it whereas right. when you're flowing in life and you're You're taught to allow for stillness, to allow for space. I mean, really, it's such a beautiful thing to allow a child to find their way in their mind and get quiet instead of just handing them a tablet. And I'm I'm no judgment towards a child using a tablet, (laughs) or especially as a non-mom, no judgment, but really no judgment because of that. But I do think that the theme of what I see with children is to overstimulate them, to keep them happy, take them to theme park after theme park, after, you know, whatever it is, just keep them so busy so that they Mm -hmm. don't cry or they don't this, but I think your parents, it sounds like they allowed you the greatest gift, which is to enjoy stillness by yourself, even if that's just driving, right? It's not a formal meditation the way we see it now, but to be able to find those pockets of peace throughout your day are like your little mini anchors that you weren't even meaning to drop. Exactly. I didn't know that I was dropping those anchors, but also when you have
6: stillness or peace between chaos... I found that that is when my imagination activates. And because we're talking about children, I can say without a doubt, that is when my children's imaginations activate. And Albert Einstein said, imagination is everything. It is the preview of life's coming attractions, because what you think about, you create. And actually, Albert Einstein also said, this is like my favorite quote ever. If you want your children to be intelligent, read them fairy tales. If you want your children to be more intelligent, read them more fairy tales. Because the idea is that when you dream, when you place into your imagination a fantasy, when you picture a world outside of your own, you are activating your brain in a way that looking at a screen could never do for you. It's actually why they say that children, the difference in their brain activity, I was just reading about this in this book called Glow Kids, because my kids do get iPads and they they get it too often. And so I was reading this book, Glow Kids, and it was talking about how they did a study where children that were being read to, like in a picture book, how their brain... Processed the images on the page at a certain level that allowed them to absorb it and remember it. But when they are watching an iPad, their brain is being hit with an image, and they're not absorbing and they're not remembering. And so it's essentially not activating that part of your brain that creates. And I think that for me, the silence, the gaps—I mean, uh, my dad used to always say it's—it's it's the space between the notes that makes the music. It's the space between the bars that holds the tiger. Get in the gap. And that's what the gap is. It's the space. And I I didn't even think of it as dropping anchors throughout my day, but I love that because that is what it is. And hopefully I'm demonstrating that for my kids how that you say that i'm like am i even showing them that that's what i'm doing i hope so
4: that's kind of what your new book lends into my takeaway from what i've gotten to read so far is that despite growing up with access to what all of us are in search of right now to create for ourselves to find the right apps and leaders and this you had mm-hmm. it in your home from the first breath that you took from both of your mm-hmm. parents So much so that maybe it was taken for granted so that now, you know, when you did lose your father, (laughs) it began your search to, oh, shoot, how do I do this without you? Yes. Up
6: until the point of the, the year my dad died. So he died in 2015. But up until that point, I had had relatively smooth sailing all my life and I thought, like, I've got this spiritual stuff down, you know, like I'm so great that nothing can touch me and no harm can come my way because, you know, I just want to track that or I'm just not in alignment with that. I was totally out of touch with reality and I was honestly just insufferable. I experienced a complete life changing year of 2015, which was I became a mother Um, I gave birth to my daughter, sailor. My husband was arrested and indicted and my dad died. And all of our finances were frozen as a result of my husband's legal situation. There goes the
4: perfect life.
6: (laughs) Yeah, everything. I mean, my body image was really tied up in how I looked and how I felt about myself was contingent upon how I looked. And I looked like I had some weight to lose from the baby. And all I did every day then was feel bad about how I looked because of that, totally disregarding the fact that I just created this miraculous little being. And yeah, it was like, I just focused on all of the things that I knew better than to focus on. But I don't know if you've ever heard of Carl Jung has this thing where he talks about the morning and afternoon of your life. And the morning of your life is like when everything of value to you is based on things that fill your ego, like how you look, what you have, what other people think, the afternoon of your life. And that can begin at any age. It doesn't mean it comes later in life, but it's when your focus shifts from your ambition or your ego, it shifts into meaning. So what you seek out are things that mean something to you or people or relationships that mean something. So you go from being all about, I am my reputation. I am what I have. I am, you know, what other people think I am, what I do. I am how I look. You go from that to, I am God and I am connected to everyone. And I think that, man, I was really living in the morning of my life. And I just (laughs) didn't know that I was in the morning. I didn't know that I was so attached to all of the things that filled my ego that had nothing to do with me on the inside. They were all things that were based on other people's perception, based on what I had, based on what I did, based on how I
4: looked. All of those things are constantly changing and have nothing to do with who you are. Do you think anyone in the morning of their life knows that they're in the morning of their life? No, but if anybody did, you would think it would be Wayne Dyer's kid. I mean,
6: come <laughs> on. It's like, I knew what the morning of my life was. I i knew what that was. I just thought that I had it all made. And that like, of course, I was so loving and wonderful. Everything was so easy.
4: But I think, you know, it's your, your hindsight, they say is 2020. But I think that your hindsight's 2020 and whatever you're specifically looking back at, because right. there are also moments where you're not attached to, To those things in the time period that you call your morning, like what you did your, what you went to college for, first of all. (laughs) I was a good person. It wasn't like my attitude was selfish or
6: hoity toity or like, condescending or I, I never really had any like personality traits like that. But it was also that I identified my value in terms of how I looked and what I had and what other people thought of me and what I was doing. And I wanted a master's degree at 23 because I wanted to say I had a master's degree at 23. It wasn't because I wanted the master's degree because I had an inherent calling learn. It was because I wanted to say it,
4: Mm, which is fine. I don't judge her. I love her. I guess the the moment that I'm thinking of is after your first initial master's degree, when you pursued law school (laughs) and you're not a lawyer. I didn't announce you as that. So you didn't end up going to law school. What happened there?
6: Yeah, I guess I was a little bit woke I don't know. I was—I I guess there was some parts of me that were more conscious or more consciously connected to like God than I'm giving myself credit for. But this is going to sound so arrogant, and it—I mean, I am bragging for a moment. I took the LSAT just to see how I would do, and I did really well, and I got a scholarship. So I decided to go to law school, and I was going to law school during the day at one school here in South Florida, and I was doing my master's degree at night at another school. It got to a point where. Uh, in my first semester of law school, I ended up getting really sick with pneumonia and I had to miss like a full week of class, which in law school is a really big deal. So I was like behind and I was thinking like, Oh my God, I, I don't want to do this. Like, I hate coming here. I hated going there. I loved going to school. I loved going to my master's program. I did not like anything about the law school stuff. And I had a conversation with my dad where I really wanted to quit, but I was afraid of being a failure because I really did think that who I was was what I did. And if I wasn't doing, then I was nothing. And so if I said to everybody that I was going to law school and then I quit, well, then I was a loser and I was going to stay in just because I didn't want to be a quitter, which I correlated with a loser. And my dad said to me, Serena, you are going every day to a place where you don't want to be that doesn't resonate with your soul. You're wondering why you're getting sick all the time. Illness starts with I. Wellness starts with we. When you are in a state of dis-ease, when you are out of ease, out of flow, you welcome in disease. When you make it about serving something bigger than yourself You are in alignment or in harmony with wellness, with we, with everyone. And he basically said, if you are doing something that makes you feel sick, but doing it just because you're afraid of what other people might think, you are bringing on dis-ease. You are setting yourself up to not be at ease. And I was like, so you don't care if I quit? And he was like, no, I don't care. You have to do what you feel called to do. Not what anybody else is going to think about it. Not what anybody else tells you to do. And so I quit and it didn't really fix anything for a while. I still felt actually worse because I really did feel like a loser. I felt like I quit and I shouldn't have. And I wished that my parents would have been the type to make me stay. But eventually when I was listening to my dad give a talk on Maui, he was talking about how you can't, how you don't want to get to the end of your life And think or realize that you lived a lie, that you lived your life according to somebody else's rules or somebody else's requirements, that there is a part of your soul that is just yearning to be released and to be free and to expand. And that was something that he was giving a whole talk about in Maui, but I felt like he was speaking right to me. I felt like I understood what he was really saying, which was, don't die with your music still in you and that's why I ended up writing that book because all I ever wanted to be was a storyteller but there's no like major in college for storyteller and I didn't know anybody that was a storyteller so I just didn't think it was a possibility for me and now that's all I do is tell stories sometimes I even get paid for them so it's great (laughs) like I write a book I get paid to tell stories it's like who would have thought that I could have made a career out of that
2: Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva, Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store.
1: Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring.
4: i mean you're telling the most important stories of them all and it's not just your dad's teaching it's how they landed with you and the experience that you had allows for all of us to kind of see our own lives within yours especially Mm -hmm. when you talk about the more difficult moments whether that's quitting law school or you know your husband getting indicted and your assets being frozen Most people would probably just assume if you didn't tell your story that you had just a really idyllic childhood filled with meditation and Maui Mm -hmm. and all this stuff. But the reality is it wasn't like that. And before we even get into your book, which is awesome, I feel like it would be a disservice to not speak about what you said. You you know, we spoke a little before this because we have an offline relationship as well, but you've had quite the awakening just this past year. Just this past month. I mean,
6: (laughs) literally, I became aware in March that I had become an alcoholic and or an addict that I always had to have something to avoid feeling whatever it was that I was feeling. And At first it was alcohol. You might laugh when I say this, but I have extreme, extremely severe social anxiety. I have a very difficult time feeling comfortable talking to people in a way that is light and small talk-ish. It's really painful for me. I don't know how to do it. Um, I feel extremely self-conscious. I get uh, sweaty Like I get really nervous. I will talk to you. I will tell you every detail about like being on the delivery room table, like giving birth. I could care less giving you the gory details, but ask me like, Hey, how are you? I don't know how to answer that. And um, actually I learned that maybe I'm an introvert because apparently introverts feel more comfortable on a stage than they do in a crowd. And I was like, that is me all day. I have no fear of talking to people. I have a fear of being in the crowd and having to do small talk. Why do you think that I would laugh at that?
4: Just curious.
6: Because anytime I say that I'm an introvert, people are like you, you're so
4: loud and outgoing and talkative. I wouldn't say introvert, but I knew that I, I feel people's energy. So I know that in situations that I've been in with you like that you're not necessarily your most comfortable right now you're your most comfortable (laughs) but like in more intimate settings you're Mm -hmm. I I too struggle with small talk so I think maybe I just like you said you were a mirror for me I think I'm some maybe a mirror for what you are feeling because I'm Mm -hmm. the same exact way so it makes all the sense to me
6: Yeah. Well, I think it takes one to know one because I think a lot of people just don't understand. They have a huge fear of public speaking, but you know, would be totally comfortable saying like, hi, how are you? I used to avoid. So I, we have a camera at our front door and the screen is, I, I can see when people walk up to my front door from my living room. And I used to avoid getting the mail because I was not, sure how to just say hello to the mail person bringing the package. I would let them leave a sticker saying that like, oh, we tried to drop off your package and couldn't rather than just go get it. It became unbearable. And I coped with that with alcohol. And then that led to Adderall, which led to alcohol again, and basically just got me to this point of realizing that there's nothing wrong with feeling what I'm feeling. And there's no anxiety when I'm just allowing the feeling. It's all of the fear leading up to it and all of the stress that I create around it. And I don't have to do that. I can just feel, oh, this is what uncomfortable feels like.
4: Mm-hmm.
6: Okay. I don't like it. That's okay. It's not going to last forever. It's like I realized that I was starting or I had become like an addict. And I was afraid of that. I was really afraid of what that would mean for my future and mean for my children and for my life. And it, it was almost like I had to get to a point where I could understand. And I don't mean understand because somebody told me. I mean, I was like in alignment with the message enough that it resonated deep within me that it was not that bad to just feel what I was afraid of, or what I was anxious about. And it's only the act of trying to avoid feeling that creates all the shit that we we don't want to feel in the first place. So I still have social anxiety. And now I don't get drunk and black out and wake up anxious about what I did when I was drunk. It's like, now I just deal with it. And I still don't like like having to be social. I still I didn't like become a social butterfly overnight.
4: And you don't need to. That's not you. That's not you. And I don't need to. Exactly. And
6: it's great that I can do it now without having to get drunk in the process.
4: And knowing that it's uncomfortable to even be able to speak to yourself and say, okay, this is a little bit uncomfortable. Here's where I would normally grab a drink. And I know that that doesn't actually make me feel better uh, is really empowering.
6: yeah, well, it's um like I said, it's like a very new thing for me. I haven't even really talked about it publicly before. I'm just at a point where I don't feel any shame in it. And so I think that's why I can talk about it. Because when I was doing it, when I was drinking too much, when I was taking pills, when I was using, I was not past that behavior. I was still in it. And therefore, I still felt ashamed of it. And now I kind of realize that there's absolutely no shame in having had that experience and overcoming it. The shame is in lying to myself and to those that I love, but I'm not doing that anymore. Therefore, I have nothing to be ashamed of.
4: I'm so proud of you. This was is hard, will be hard, continues to be hard. And yet going back to you said, I wanted to be a storyteller, I think this i don't know if you realized it but the stories that you're telling are so shaping, shifting and eye-opening to those of us who are listening even if it's your story as it unfolds. Well, thank you.
6: I did not know how much I was going to like the AA tribe. Let me tell you, these women are I thought I belonged at like the PTA. Like I was like a PTA mom, you know, with like my like SUV and manicure. No, I am an AA girl all the way. I love them. They're nuts. They have more energy than me. Some of them don't. Some of them are quiet, but every single one of them that I've met has said to me something along the lines of, Oh, you have that dark underbelly. Oh, you did all that. Oh, you had shame. Oh, you were raped. Oh, you had this happen to you. So did I let's be friends. And it is the most spiritually soul, life-affirming experience I have ever had to be able to bear my ugliness, the things that caused me so much shame, to be able to bear those to a group of strangers, particularly women, because I'm a girl's girl. I prefer women. I mean, I'm married to a man, but I prefer to be around women. And all of these women from all different walks of life are like, oh, we've had the same. We see you. And we love you regardless. I'm telling you, it's like a sisterhood.
4: I'm glad you said that because my first question to you when you told me AA, I said, can you relate? You know, you said you're working the program. I said, can you relate to the people? And I don't know why I asked that, but your response was like, oh, yes, I relate to them more than I relate to, you know, other people in my life. And it's been mm-hmm. my, and no, this is what you said. You said, yes, because we all shared the same desire to not live anymore. Yeah, you all lost your connection to spirit universe. Yeah. Source. Yeah. We lost our connection.
6: And I think for me, I don't want to say for everybody, but I think for a lot of us, we didn't feel worthy of finding it again. I didn't feel worthy. I didn't feel worthy of bringing God back into my life. I felt that I was raised with wonderful parents. I was given so many uh, wonderful opportunities and experiences in life that I had had such a beautiful life. And I still became uh, an alcoholic. And I thought that that meant that I didn't deserve to be happy again. I didn't deserve all that I had been given because I had risked throwing it away. I didn't realize and I'm still, I mean I'm literally like in the first month of doing this. Um actually I'm a little over the first month, but I didn't realize that I would get to a point where I would be grateful for having gone through it. And I can tell you right now that I am grateful that I have the relationships that I've made. I can't say that I'm grateful yet for like, you know, knowing that I'm an alcoholic, but I am grateful for the relationships that I've made and I hope One day I'm grateful for all of the storms I created in my own life. I'm sure I will be. I'm just not there yet.
4: Well, I mean, most people don't show up a month out of this and share so much, (laughs) but you're also at that beautiful point where, like, the light's peeping into your life. You know, there's like, it's not all sunshine, but there's a ray of sunshine amidst the clouds, and you're just allowing it in. And it's just incredibly powerful. And this is all happening at the same time that your book is being released, which is, in theory, not the best time to say, oh, and I'm an alcoholic. And I, yeah. I'm an addict.
6: I have been talking to my sponsor about this because, oh my God, I'm so AA now. I have have a sponsor. I love (laughs) love it it too. I was talking to her about this because I was having really big fraud feelings. I was thinking that I was a fraud and I was really feeling like a fraud because I, I am coming to terms with admitting that I am an addict or alcoholic. And I have a book coming out about how to get in alignment with your highest self. It's like hello, those are very opposite ends of the spectrum here. But the truth is the arrow only goes forward by getting pulled back. I Mm -hmm. mean, you have to go low in order to get high. And this was just an experience that I guess my soul signed up to have, probably to bring me back down to earth a little bit and make me less insufferable. I don't know.
4: (laughs) It seems like they're opposites, but I mean, I think anyone listening and my own reflecting and your own reflecting is... The most awful parts of our life, that's what this podcast is kind of about, are actually the entryways, the doorways to that sunshine, to Mm -hmm. that alignment. Like we are just in a trance of life until we can't be in a trance anymore. And that's usually caused by something traumatic, intense, shameful, quote unquote, shameful. Mm -hmm. And from there, there's this moment of what the F do I do? Because I'm so far deep that if you look around somewhere, there's a door and the doorway's out. And this is your doorway out into the knowing, which is the book <laughs> that's coming out. No, really. So the book is called The Knowing and you co-wrote it with your sister, which is so cool. I've never met your sister. I would, I would love to meet your whole family. Uh, maybe we can arrange for that one time. Yes, Please. I would love that. Is there a simple way to explain what is the knowing?
6: A lighthouse stands in the darkness and it guides you home. and never fails. It always shows you the path. And I think that is the best, most simplest way to explain the knowing. It is the internal lighthouse. It will not lead you astray. It will always bring you home. But you have to look for it. It can't go out looking for you. And every single one of us has this internal knowing this internal lighthouse, if you will, that is unique to ourselves and that guides us in the direction of, of God. And I know for some people, God might be an uncomfortable word, say in spirit, growth, soul, universe, whatever you want to call it. I don't think it matters. But the knowing is like this place that exists within you that for a lot of us over time, we lose that connection. We, we allow it to get rusty. and And that happened big time in my life. And I wrote about it in The Knowing, about how even though I had these great parents and this great spiritual upbringing, I kind of allowed that internal guiding force, I kind of turned the volume of it down. And I went through a lot of challenges as a result, but I found my way back. I somehow found my way back to, to that place of eternal, omniscient, love, love. Growth, support, all of the green lights in the universe that you are looking for are right there, all of the answers, but you have to go to
4: it. I mean, it's as simple as that. You didn't grow up in a vacuum. You know, we talked about how you grew up, which was so different than how I grew up, which had no spirituality, you know, finding meditation at age 25 by necessity, being the only person in my family to go to yoga or you know what all of that stuff but nonetheless you didn't grow up in a vacuum you were still in Boca Raton Florida which is a materialistic place and you went to like everything else about your experiences were really quite noisy you know you didn't grow up with yes you knew monks but you didn't grow up on a <laughs> it, living in a monk environment right and so naturally your knowing is going to be tested as that volume gets cranked, and I think it only makes sense, I don't know, in my own, like, using your terminology, the knowing, or your and sage's terminology, or I think it was your father's originally, is to know that if you're going to live in this world, this modern world, and do your best, you're going to leave that lighthouse, and then you have to look for it to come back home, and it's going to be dark sometimes right. and cloudy and hard to find but it's there. Yeah, it is there.
6: And even when you convince yourself that it's not or you don't feel worthy of it, it's still there. It still welcomes you home just as bright. And the one thing I can say that has always stuck with me is that my dad used to say that earth is the classroom, that our human incarnation is the classroom. And when we leave this tattered coat, this body, when we leave this body behind, we go home. And that there's only two things that your soul wants while it's in the classroom, to grow and to expand, which are basically the same thing. But that's what your soul's purpose is, expansion, expansion into oneness, oneness with all. Sounds a little bit out there, I get it. But I think that when I feel ashamed or judgmental toward myself for the things that I have done or the places I have found myself, I realize that if I didn't experience some hard things, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to grow from them. And so ultimately, I do believe that even the bad, I signed up to experience because my soul wanted to grow. And we don't grow by staying the same. And if you don't get the lesson, you're going to keep getting it until you get it. So it's like, get it the
4: first time.
6: <laughs> Save yourself
4: <laughs> all the trouble. <laughs> uh, if only it were that easy. And what, what made you and Sage want to write this book now? Well,
6: honestly, we've been writing it for like three years. It just so happens that it's coming out now. We both were writing after our dad passed away. And then I had two more kids after that. So it kind of got put on the back burner. And then it was, I don't know, I guess within the last two years, I think she and I both just started talking about it more. And then we started combining our stories and we found a great literary agent and things kind of went from there. But I can't take any credit for the, for the divine timing. I think that something bigger than me at play because I have no idea why it's coming out right now. Other than it is.
4: I love the little anecdotal stories in it. Even just hearing that you had a nanny and your nanny was instructed (laughs) to teach you only with love. So, not to tell you what to do or to talk about religion in a certain way or to ask you what you want to be growing up. But your household, everything about it was from a place of unconditional love. And I don't think that's something a lot of us experience. There might Mm -hmm. be unconditional love, but the language we use, our parents use for us, or maybe we use with our children, doesn't feel conditional, you know? And how do you think that shaped you? I think that I can talk about
6: things that other people maybe would feel ashamed of talking about or would feel afraid to admit. Because I know that I'm loved despite or in spite of all of my shortcomings, I think that it allowed me to feel safe being vulnerable. And I think that's probably because I wasn't raised to think that the love that my parents had for me was based on satisfying them. You know, I was raised to think that the love my parents had for me was endless and there was nothing that would take that away. And because of that, I didn't feel afraid to be, I don't know, vulnerable, I guess, is the best way to describe it. But more than that, I think the biggest thing that I got out of that sort of unconditionally loving, really unique upbringing was that I did not have parents that said, go after your dreams, Serena, follow your dreams while they simultaneously sacrificed their own. I had parents that lived their Dharma, lived what they felt called to do. And on a subconscious level, I think that gave me some kind of permission to do the same. It wasn't like my mom said, You can do anything. You can be anything. If you want to be a great singer or painter, you can do it. And meanwhile, she was keeping her own voice silenced. You know, I think that what we do as parents is so loud that children do not hear what we say. And the beautiful part of my upbringing was that my parents lived it more beautiful than
4: anything they said. That's the strongest thing I've ever heard. And do you feel <laughs> that, that you're able to bring that into your home? I was not when I was drinking. I'm getting there.
6: I think my children feel loved, mm-hmm. but I think I'm still kind of mean you know, how to have that same love for myself, but I'm really, really doing it. That's why I'm doing the A. That's why I'm talking about it because I see that I'm worth it and I feel that I'm worth it. And now it's just a matter of kind of taking those steps and doing it.
4: And I'll just counter argue that even though you saw your parents living their Dharma and it sounds like mostly aligned for a lot of their life, there's something more powerful that your children are going to take away, which is seeing a parent, whether, you know, they're still very young, but seeing a parent go through something hard and finding your way out of it is going to provide Mm -hmm. a new set of tools for your children that perhaps you weren't given yourself.
6: Yes, I love that. That makes me feel better as a mom. But I also think, especially for my daughters, what I want them to see is that it's when you feel as though you have to keep it a secret. You know that saying you're only as sick as your secrets? It's okay to have done something and not be proud of it. And you can get past it when you like bring it to light, when you just let it out of your body. But when you hold it in and you carry it around and you feed off of it, I think particularly for women, it's a hard thing to do to tell the truth to ourselves about ourselves, even the dark underbelly that, that we have. And if there's anything that I think I hope I can accomplish, it's to let all my shit out into the light so that my daughters feel as though they can do the same, that they do not have to carry around any shame and feed on that because it doesn't serve us. It's out of harmony with our lighthouse. And we're worth so much more than that. And even, you know, even though I had great parents, it's like, I still had to get that for myself. I still really had to kind of get that for myself. And I don't know, maybe my kids will too, or maybe they can avoid it by seeing me. I don't know.
4: Would you say that your, your parents taught you that there was a lighthouse, but it was up to you to find it?
6: Yes. I used to say like, just tell me what I should do. Mm-hmm. And it was always Serena, the only person that can tell you what you should do is inside of yourself. If you just get quiet enough to hear it. And you know, I'm a Gemini, like I don't, I didn't like having to quiet my mind. I wanted to be a thousand active thoughts a second, but they were right. Like you said, I, I love that you said dropping anchors. It was like, I didn't realize until you said that, that that's what I was doing. But yeah, I was dropping little anchors throughout the day of having little pockets of silence so that I could hear, hear my knowing speak to me.
4: And so the knowing is available when? Which date? Oh, May 11th. May 11th. Okay. So this is right on time. We're going to link the knowing below. It's awesome. I've gotten to check it out. And I think you're really living your Dharma as a storyteller by telling these stories, both you and your sister. Um, and I, I just, I love the book and I'm so proud of where you are in life. And I already hear your next book already kind of (laughs) coming together. So get writing. (laughs) You've got work to do. From PTA to AA. That's going to be my next book. That's a great title. No one take that. I don't think anyone could, but (laughs) I don't think it's applicable to too many. (laughs) Yeah, well, watch out. It might be you next.
6: You never know. PTA <laughs> to
4: a. Well, thank you so much for living your dharma, for sharing this, for reminding us of our own knowing and being brave enough to have this exciting moment of becoming an author again and sharing the reality of also what's going on in your life because that is the reality for most of us. Well, thank you. And I, I have to say that
6: my mother-in-law and I together text each other your posts all the time <laughs> we, al- we always are texting each other did you see what she posted she loves your dancing videos oh gosh but you, you also do the same and I'm not just saying this to be like oh you scratched my back let me scratch hers you really have an unapologetic here I am and this is me and it's so rare and it's so beautiful um, and it's so freeing to see because it's so real And I feel like when you do that, when you are so unapologetically, you without shame, I love how you'll say like the not edited, no filters, like this is the real thing. This is the truth. It is so freeing for so many people because so many people live the morning of their life
4: Mm.
6: where they think that who they are is what everyone else is thinking of them and I don't know. I think that you just like give, give people permission to be like, you know, I'm going to dance in my underwear and my messy bun and my pregnant (laughs) belly and whatever else. It's like, it's incredible that you do that and that you're
4: so, I don't know, free. I love it. Thanks for seeing it in me. Because again, I think you're just mirroring yourself, but you're my mirror and I'm yours and I'm happy to take it because (laughs) you're helping me now return to that place of my knowing. So thank you, Serena. Thank you for your time, your energy, Uh, for giving your life's work to us in this way. I I love you, and I hope to see you soon. I love you, too, and I hope to see you soon. Thank you for having me. Thanks for living your truthiest life.
5: Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health.